Hello and welcome to the Tech Bytes audio cast. My name's Tim and I'm from the Bytes Bloggerzine and with me is Dr. Roy Shesterwitz from the Tech Bytes website. It's Friday night and I'm gonna get sauce. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. He tried to boss me and was outbossed. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost Underneath this creeper bridge Hoping goats will cross Quoting Ashcroft Hello and welcome to what I think is episode 88 of the Tech Show. I'm back again, Tim, and I'm with Roy, who hopefully is on the other end right now. Of course. (laughs) It is uh, episode 88 and it's only the second time we do a show this year. Uh, because we're really getting back into it and it's becoming quite difficult well, it, for both of us for family it, it reasons. Is, it is sort of working. I mean, we've uh, we had a bit of a, um, a failure last week, which was completely my fault. Um, I had intended to come on the weekend. It seems to be working reasonably. So, um, yes, without further ado, I think you've got the topics, Roy, and I've got uh, whatever I've got. So, on you go. Well, I wish I had a topics, but we never write them down, actually, and this is something we've done since day one in 2010. Uh, we have some ideas of things that might be worth covering, but usually it's just the latest news. So, speaking of latest news, uh, about two three hours ago, somebody in the RC channel posted a link saying that the Microsoft Xbox One uh, will cease production. Now, Based on what I've read, only read two articles because it's really like breaking news. Uh, the story um, would say, well, would have you convinced that uh, they have done what's called channel stuffing, which means that they have stuffed every piece of shelf that would be, shall we say, uh, tolerable of an Xbox One surveillance device. Uh, and right now there is no room to fill because nobody really takes them you know off the shelves basically they're not selling well Microsoft will tell us that they sell like whatever five million units but no they sold it to the stores in other words they stock them up in the stores and there is no demand for them which basically means nobody's buying them so production has officially stopped who knows if it will pick up at some stage and it's great news for Sony. It's very embarrassing for Microsoft. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I've just been while you were saying that short intro piece. Um, I've just been looking up on the net to see what uh, what was said about it, and I found a few genuine sites, as I would call them, more trustworthy sites that reported the same news. It's very kind of breaking news. I'm not sure mm. if it's just a few hours old or maybe it's well, something from this morning. To be honest, I mean, over, over on Game Revolution, uh, they seem to echo what you just said. It may be a case uh, that they're going to be slowing production rather than stopping it, but it's um, they're citing excess supply as the uh, as the reason. However, with this being Microsoft, the skeptic in me can't help but thinking, is this another one of their ploys? We often see them claiming running out of stock for products. I think Windows Phone was claimed to have run out of stock and there's only a few available. Uh, I, n- I don't think that would serve them well. Uh, another piece of news is about the so-called service, which I found to be funny. We never covered this before because we didn't really do many shows when Microsoft was creating those lockdown devices they called Surface. Now it's not as big, what's known as the big ass table, 
the old service that they had. It's this basically a subsidized on the face of it device running this uh, what I call V-State horrible operating system that I happen to have used in the airport. Complete rubbish, you know, very uh, difficult to use uh, for very basic things, uh, not at all usable. And I think uh, I think the oh, I can't remember his name now. He got the guy who was behind basically got fired like last year. Um, complete disaster. And this is worse than Vista, the original Vista, not Vista. And um, and the story in the register, which was written by Gavin Clark, he's a Microsoft booster, 20 years now, um, basically said that they, the more they sell, the more they lose. And I think the, the business model there is just to try to get you hooked onto Microsoft services, getting your data, whatever. Uh, we know that the CIA and NSA actually subsidize Microsoft for snoops. And we know this because we have leaks to show it. Uh, so maybe that's the business model. Now, they also didn't manage to sell many of those things last year, and they actually lose money on that. Uh, so putting all those things together, you see the hardware side of Microsoft, or Microsoft trying to reinvent itself as hard soft is not really working too well. And, uh, and that's good, of course, because this is what they were gambling on as the next thing after the Windows uh, monopoly or the common carrier being Windows. It beggars belief a little bit because, I mean, there's no arguing, certainly in the UK, uh, the Xbox, the original Xbox. And originally when you said this story about Xbox One, I was thinking maybe somebody was getting confused and posting a rumor about the original Xbox and just saying Xbox One, meaning that the latest one would be an Xbox Two type thing. Um, but the, the problem that Microsoft got with the Xbox One, as I see it, um, and really this should have been glaringly obvious to them, is that the, the main competition that they had was cheaper and it also was high, well, is higher spec than their Xbox One console, um, which doesn't bode well. Now, with consoles, I've noticed a lot of people, and this was the same with a, a lot of my uh, friends and people I know, they have a console for a long time, for example, the Xbox, and they get fed up of the console, they get fed up of the user interface, and they want to have a look and see what other machines have to offer. And of course, the Sony uh, PlayStation 3 saw a massive increase in sales right towards the end, when really it shouldn't have been gaining sales at all, because the, uh, the PS4 was coming out, the Xbox, the original Xbox was, uh, or 360, was entrenched in, in the marketplace. And just one step into a, a computer games outlet would show you by the shelf space dedicated to the, to the titles. And the Xbox 360 was already sort of in a, a lot of people's homes. Um, so really, to release a machine that's powered, well, underpowered compared to PS4, and overpriced compared to the PS4. It's self-limiting as well. Yeah, and I mean, Nintendo, Nintendo made exactly the same error. I mean, you look at the Nintendo Wii U, that's barely more than what the Xbox 360 is now in terms of specification. Yet Nintendo expected people to pay out for this new console, in quotes, um, and all the, the only bonus it had was a fancy new controller. Well, that controller could have been made to work with the original Wii. They would have saved themselves a lot of money, a lot of development costs, and probably still made a, a massive profit. Um, so I, I think that where the console market is is going now, anyway, um, you look at all the all the different uh, variations of choice you have, and you've got the Wii U. Well, I think most people that's a, a non-starter. I don't think there's going to be many people. Maybe a couple. Of, you know, a few units are sold to families with children 
who the kids have persuaded their parents that they want a, a Wii U because they want to play the new Mario game. But I think for the majority of games, and for the majority of people, it's um, between Xbox One and PS4. And I think the other problem that they have now is that people aren't quite ready to upgrade yet either. I mean, PS3 still has a massive following. The PS4s have sold very well. But if you go into your local shop, you've got more space because there's more titles uh, for the PS3, and people still, you know, buying and selling their uh, their PS3 titles. Uh, I don't think they're quite ready to to make the leap yet. So it's important that if you've got a market like that, and I assume it was the same for the Xbox 360 users, where they're not quite ready to make the leap. It's important that when they do make the leap, that leap is substantially bigger. So the PS3 went to PS4, and t- uh, specs-wise, you look at a massive jump in terms of specifications. Xbox 360, not so much. And when it's more expensive than its competitor, and obviously I've already said it's best suspect, um, really there's not much of an appeal for people to buy it. So it doesn't surprise me that this has all ended a little bit sour. Yeah, well, um, we're in the UK, so this is a fairly Xbox-friendly country, mm-hmm. uh, historically, and uh, maybe presently as well. I happen to have seen a queue of people uh, standing in a line at some store and by the banners and could say, oh, it must be uh, the launch day or something of Xbox in the UK. Xbox One, I mean. And uh, I, I haven't been following this very closely because to tell you the truth, uh, in recent um, years, maybe two, three years, I've not been following Microsoft so closely. But I think that I, uh, PS4 uh, is doubling uh, Xbox One in terms of sales. This is a very different uh, yeah, I've, I've atmosphere. Uh, um, and also, of course, Xbox Xbox 360 came out a year before PS3. Microsoft doesn't have this advantage, and it seems like Microsoft is basically just stopping the channels right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it may well swing around the other way if this news story is correct, and if uh, a, the market saturated with uh, Xbox Ones that aren't being sold. Maybe it'll well, hopefully encourage a, a price drop, which may be the thing that would uh, cause people to buy them up. And I don't, well, I, I don't really see why people buy those things. To be honest, I mean, Steam Box is no, sorry, they call them Steam Machines now. Uh, the Steam Machines are uh, based on Debian, goodness, Lord, Linux, and these are the uh, this. There are a bunch of them. Different brands make them. Uh, different companies integrate different components, and it's approved by Steam to run Steam OS or whatever, which is based on Debian. And these things, if you wish, could probably function as a computer, very much in the same way PS3 could have. Been. With, with your if, Steam boxes, uh, with your Steam boxes, uh, the problem you're looking at there is it all comes down to titles they you know for example when the ps3 was released i believe the launch title there was god of war um which was a, an amazing tech demo I, I i didn't see much of a game in that at all personally and it was more of a tech demo but it managed to hook in a massive uh, crowd of uh, customers um, and it's all about the games now and it's exactly the same way as why windows phone hasn't appealed to the, the mainstream consumer whereas android did is because all the developers are on Android and the software, the market base is larger, the software is more diverse, they've got uh, so much more choice. It's the same in the console world. If people are going to plug something into their television in the front room, they want it having Grand Theft Auto or whatever it is they happen to 
or God of War 3, I think. I should mention, it's not only Steam that's completely transforming the... Uh, I should mention this. Last time when we were very consistently doing the show, uh, the state of games on Microsoft Linux wasn't that exciting. I mean, it was starting to pick up with Steam. Uh, now, the several headlines about new uh, game engines being ported to Linux, and, and, and also the drivers are improving a great deal. So, if you look at, go to like Google News and put something like Linux, you'll see like more than half the headlines will be about some games. And that tells the story. Uh, Linux is one of the big boys when it comes to like, you know, games. There is no discrimination against it among most of the big gaming uh, franchises. Yeah, I mean, the, the, issue, the issue you've got though, and, and like I say, is in, in the mainstream consumer's mind, and you see this with Canonical a lot with their Ubuntu um, distro, they don't mention the word Linux. Um, now, whether that's intentional, I'm sure. Uh, I um, I don't think there is a stereotype so strong anymore. No, no, I don't. No, I think there's any yeah. sort of stereotype. I don't think the mainstream consumer would know what Linux is. They've got no stereotype. You know, there's no bad press about it in terms of what oh, they put contract in their mind. I think they know. Mind. You'd be surprised. My mother knows what it is. Maybe <laughs> it's and she's not a tech. She's not a technically savvy person, but she heard the name before. Yeah, uh, and. But there's no, there's no adverse connotation to the word Linux in the mainstream consumer's mind, as far as I'm aware. Um, I've certainly not come across it. Usually the response to the word Linux is, what's that? Um, but certainly nothing negative about it. Um, but I think the problem is, 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 is market knowledge. Now, people know about PlayStation, they know about Microsoft, they know about Xbox, they know about the Wii U. And these things are the things that they'll spend their money on because when you're parting with three, four hundred pounds for a dedicated console, you want something that's going to have a bit of staying power. And you have to be very unfortunate to buy into a console that's got a big name and end up um, out, you know, losing out because of the console flops, like Sega Saturn, I believe, was one. Well, um, Linux doesn't need to target. Uh, okay, why do people know Xbox and stuff? For one thing, it's at the store and it says on it Xbox or PlayStation. The other reason is they put it on TV, and they spend a lot of money. People who buy those consoles, they get a multi, uh, sorry, they get a single-purpose machine with very high pro, or very uh, high cost. And uh, and in the case of Xbox One, if you wish to, if you wish, I can go again talking about surveillances with the previous show. But this is basically a surveillance device, and we also know that the GCHQ in the UK was thinking about using the Kinect for surveillance of people. Uh, Xbox Live is, as we know, not only being eavesdrop on, eaves, eavesdrops, eavesdropped on, but also people who are doing in-game chat are under surveillance by malls, essentially, inside the games. And this is leaks from, like, I don't know, November, maybe October last year. So this is not, like, a very appealing place to be if you wish to play games. You're under surveillance. You only rent the device. It's all basically a very single-purpose device that would refuse to do anything except playing the game, games, which are themselves encrypted, so that you know I can only uh, enable them for playing. If you uh, if you've purchased the license, which of course can expire, and they can delete things remotely. So you know here you have a situation where people are buying very uh, unattractive. Uh, 
devices because they go by names and brands and perceptions that oh if I have a PlayStation all my friends are gonna want to come over to my house and play the game uh, whereas with Linux it's targeting a technical crowd so the Linux Foundation which is a branding company running by, by a branding person Jim Zemlin he's a branding guy if you look at his career and the other people are PR people their goal is to try to promote Linux to developers and to big corporations that make server hardware and printing and you know all that sort of stuff so it's a very different audience so to say the word Linux it should mean something to a developer but not to like a person going into a store because nothing's gonna say Linux or have a tux you know mascot on it well sticking on the subject of gaming so briefly I wouldn't mind just making a quick mention of a piece of software, open source software called Stella. Um, it's a Atari 2600 emulator and I've recently given it a little bit of treatment over on uh, my little site. Um, so if I may I will go into a little bit more detail in that. Um, Stella 3.9.3 came out roughly the end of January and basically does voices in the tin. Uh, it's an Atari 2600 emulator. Now, for those of you listening that aren't as old as myself, it was a console from around the early 80s. Plugged into your television, and it produced some pretty basic games. I think its uh, cartridges had a, a 1K capacitor, or certainly very, very small um, capacity, and it had about a few hundred titles that came out for the machine over its life, and. Uh, it was horrendously popular because at the time for most people it was the first ever console or gaming device that they had in their home so things like bat and ball and a sort of arkanoid clone um, and frogger and stuff was quite an amazing thing so Stella seeks to um, to emulate all of that uh, on your Linux machine um, obviously it has a, a Linux binary you probably find it in most of the uh, repos of most uh, distributions although probably not latest version but certainly one close and this uh, package has been mature for quite a while now um, the bugs that have been ironed out really uh, now it's just fine-tuning it's been complete and very solid for many many years I remember Stella appeared in the puppy arcade distribution I reviewed many years ago um, and even then it was mature and fully working so um, great little package gives you access to uh, the whole catalogue of Atari 2600 games um, which funnily enough I think equates to about 4 megabytes or certainly no more than 5 in size which gives you an example of how uh, how compact the games were in those days and how small they were um, great bit of fun for all of about 5 or 10 minutes um, probably a minute a game because once you see the restrictions that uh, the machine had in terms of uh, graphics and sounds I think after the novelty factors worn off you'll uh, tire of them very quickly so I wrote a little piece on that over on uh, on my open bytes blog um, I'm sure there'll be a link in the show notes um, and also got a lot of flack for uh, attacking uh, well not attacking but making a few flippant remarks about a community which exists apparently um, of 2600 enthusiasts that still play these games but if you want to have a look it's a bit light-hearted a bit of fun it's over on the on open bytes uh, I'll stick the link in the show notes um, and it's a very good little package, if only for about half an hour of your life. Um, I would start to worry about anybody who spent a significant amount of time playing these games because they are very basic. And when you get titles like Room of Doom, 
I think you can imagine how complex these things are. Um, but so that was that. Um, just looking over some of the other things I covered, um, if I may, Roy, just uh, if I can throw a few more things in. There's a great little um, Linux uh, title customizable card game, and uh, it's called Forgotten Myths. And did we mention this one last time, Roy? I don't think we did. We concentrated no, on good, surveillance. Good, good, good. Yeah, it's it's called Forgotten Myths. It's a customizable card game for Linux. Um, it also works on Android, and uh, it's a really great little game, a lot like Magic the Gathering, if anybody played that. Um, it's not open source. Um, it is a proprietary title. However, the reason I mention it is because the developers um, have developed for every platform, but they've also included Linux, which is a very nice uh, touch. That obviously shows there's um, quite a few players out there who have uh, Linux desktop who do want to uh, get involved. Um, you can check that out on my site as well. That's been linked to. Um, it's quite complicated. It's certainly not a Candy Crush type game, so it's going to take a bit of your time to learn the rules. But it's horrendously good fun, and you can play it uh, online against other people, um, and it's free. So check that one out. And I'll throw it back over to you for the next topic. Yeah. Have you had any experience with uh, good old games, GLG? No. Heard of it. So this apparently was ported to, uh, or sorry, I think it was announced that it would be ported imminently to Linux. Now I'm not sure how this relates to some of the other frameworks for game distribution and development. But basically what this means, this announcement, literally hundreds if not thousands of games, not very old games, but old games, will be available for a person who wishes to run them on a GNU/Linux system or a Steam machine or whatever it is that's based on a platform that's free software, possibly with free hardware as well. So uh, this is uh, another bit of very major news. Uh, it's about a month old now. Um, and I, I have to say that uh, the only kind of downside to all this is every free open source game that I know of really struggles to get media attention right now, even within the uh, uh, GNU Linux community of blogs, new sites, whatever. And even if they do exist and they have a new release, nobody would really want to bother with them because they get all very excited about the latest and greatest games. Now, it's not... Uh, actually, the FSF has made an announcement about news from... Uh, um, from Valve, um, I think it was a year and a half ago, two years ago, I think it was. Uh, two years ago, um, the announcement came. Ever since then, we've had literally hundreds of games added. Uh, this past year, the growth, I think, has been something like 900% in the number of games. It's really quite an amazing growth, and you can really see there is commitment to it. However, um, a lot of the games that will be, uh, uh, should we say, accepted and embraced openly do not give you access to the source code. Uh, the drivers themselves, um, it's a bit of a mixed bag because you know the graphics uh, drivers will be absolutely essential to running those uh, polygon drawing games. And if the drivers themselves remain proprietary, 
it means that yes, you might have Linux underneath and you might have GNU and you might have your desktop, but everything that will deal with the game, including the rendering of the stuff on the screen, uh, will be handled by completely proprietary code, just blobs that you have no access to. And it's kind of okay, depends what your goal is. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I I wouldn't be vocal about it. So I kind of have a category of the games, and I put me, I put all the yeah. For me, I've always put games into a um, into a category. Um, we can't. Uh, there is no argument that um, open source software, as far as utility is concerned, and the then the desktop, um, it's been well offers incredible advantages to everybody, that's both users and developers, and there's no question that. I think one of the problems that open source gaming has um, is that uh, the competition. Um, if you look at the proprietary gaming market, for example, it's absolutely saturated. I mean, it's now even at a stage where even the consoles are getting in on the old retro gaming. So not only do you have all the new console releases and all the new latest titles, you've also got them producing emulators or emulation for all the older titles as well. So the market's absolutely saturated. So before you even get off the starting line, you've got to produce something which is pretty big to get people's attention. And these days, you know, when you're looking at what the average gamer can play, I mean, there's so many proprietary titles or the, the freemium ones where they support in-app purchases, um, which hook a lot of people in uh, into the games without having to pay anything initially. And then when they want to continue on or get that bit further, that bit quicker, they have to end up forking out money. Now with all well, that going on, well. yeah, and with all that going on, regardless of what's being produced in the open source world, um, it's it's very difficult to compete. It would have to be incredibly special to be noticed. Um, I mean, there's a couple of titles which stand out for me, which um, I've been following for a long time. But again, even though they've stood out to me and I've been very interested and I've played them, they're still far from being complete, which is another problem in the open source world. We don't, unlike a proprietary game where it gets sent to the user as a complete package and ready to go, and sure it might have a few bugs or errors that need a ironing out, but it's a ready to go package. With open source gaming, it's very rare. I, I certainly am. Uh, I would say the opposite. Uh, proprietary package would run only the target platforms. Oh, yeah, and it could run at a certain time. Whereas the open source one, even if it's not officially ported to a platform, you could go to, it, you could find somebody who uh, ran the source code or compiled the source code for another platform. So the source code actually gives you more versatility and the ability to run on more places. Uh, whereas the proprietary game might work very well, but only because they target a specific uh, architecture specific product, specific brand, but and, and, and that's this, it. And this is a problem you see, isn't it? Because the, the average gamer or the person who plays games has no interest um, in the majority of the source code or programming or computing. Mm, they play I'm games. Sure. Okay, so if, if the game comes out PlayStation mm -hmm. 3, yep. and you don't have a PlayStation 3, I think you'll be pretty upset. So well, that's the whole point. Get a PlayStation 3. Yeah. Uh, so that's not a very good experience. If it was free software, maybe it would be available or oh, possible. Yeah. Or there's no doubt it would be better. But yeah. uh, the fact is, it would never. It it doesn't happen like that. And like I say, the the issue with the open source gaming is you when you get say you buy your Grand Theft Auto, your Call of Duty, you buy it, you put it in. It's a complete game. It's ready to roll. 
like I say, they might may add a few little bits and pieces a bit later on or you, whatever. But it's ready to go. Um, and the problem with open source gaming is it's an onward stage of development. Um, the, the game I mentioned, which is very close to my heart, is the game called Pioneer, which is actually the open source version of Elite 2 Frontier, which was a fantastic game on the PC and Amiga that I played on. It's a, basically the follow-up to Elite. Um, absolutely fantastic, but that's still in development. That's been running for four years, um, or even more probably. Um, now, with that type of... Um, I, I'm dedicated to following that because I was a fan of the game. However, for the average gamer who wants to go out and play Grand Theft Auto and wants to be shooting their whatever straight away, they're not going to stick around for four years. And they've got these consoles right now. And this is why open source gaming in particular has such a problem because it has to get through the adverts for Grand Theft Auto. Um, I'm not sure. So we have two uh, sources of confusion here. I mean, the one thing is being free doesn't mean you couldn't be commercial. Uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. well, wait, wait, wait. More important point here is is, is different. Uh, game Gaming is a very competitive market. If you hit a jackpot, you can make a lot of money in the same way that uh, the Harry Potter series of books was exceptionally profitable. Uh, and a lot of people, they hope to hit a jackpot. Same happens with singers. You know, if you're like Britney Spears or Lady Gaga or whatever, you can make a reasonable living, especially if you're working for the labels, but they can actually live on that. But for the vast majority of singers and bands, they will never be able to even pay, you know, for the rent using their music. Now, with the games, the, all the games, as you saw with the, with the Wii or with the Samsung Galaxy series, there's a lot of players, for instance, mobile phone manufacturers, designers, and they all hope to be one of those people who will give a big return to the investors by creating the next Galaxy series and making billions upon billions. But with games too, you have very few games that can succeed. Now, the problem that the competition is very, very, very great also for proprietary games. So maybe you've got a thousand proprietary games and a few dozens of free software games, uh, free software, free games, whatever you want to call them. But uh, among those 1,000 proprietary games, it's possible that only like 10 of them will be exceptionally successful and 900 of them will be like seriously in losses and not satisfying their shareholders, you know, hopes and stuff. So just the fact that something is free does not in itself mean that it will fail. No. Uh, currently, we don't have any exceptionally successful thing that I can, sorry, exceptionally successful game that I can think of which is also free software. However, we do have this in web servers, we have this in browsers, we have this in kernels, we have this in many things. In games, with things like Angry Birds being out there and, I don't know, Cut the Rope, none of them is really free software, even in the mobile. Uh, I mean, I, that's, market, so. and that's exactly why I started my um, my, my little uh, opinion there with in the utility world and like I say I try to put the gaming over to a separate um, a separate group because I've, I've said for a long long time that if we're talking about success and I'm trying I was trying to wrap my brain while you were talking as to um, a success a game which you could mention like Sonic the Hedgehog but a game from open, an open source game which everybody recognizes the name of and I can't specifically think of one and that's not me trying to be facetious I can't think of one at the moment but I think games 
by their sheer nature and it's a very transient market as well because you've got to remember people will get into a series of games like Mario or Sonic or whatever and these are very basic examples but they'll get into them and they'll go out of favour and then a new franchise will come along maybe it'll be Call of Duty, maybe it'll be Grand Theft Auto, maybe it'll be whatever but, but they're very fickle and uh, it's a very transient market and even with the consoles themselves there's no loyalty because when the next console comes along that offers something better they'll swap brands in a second um, there's very few people who will stay loyal to one particular console um, not certainly in any great numbers and I think this is why certainly in respect of gaming open source and proprietary it has to be pushed over into a separate that group. might change okay so you mentioned the but, but the, type yeah. Of, yeah, but the ecosystem mean, behind it I mean the ecosystem behind the whole gaming thing where you've got a console like a PlayStation or um, it doesn't it doesn't support the idea of open source software uh, but I'll tell you why why I think that's a misguided uh, explanation of it in my opinion uh, you've mentioned things like um, Sony the Hedgehog and Mario Brothers series, whatever it is, with the racing or jumping and taking mushrooms, whatever. Uh, the this goes back to a period which was not only the infancy of free software in the modern stage. Of course, there was free software before. Originally, computers were free software; people were sharing everything. Uh, however, it also goes before the age of the World Wide Web. So, for a company that makes machines that are not programmable per se uh, they have not magnetic tape and they have just circuits uh, wrapped inside of some plastic uh, the notion of sharing your source code would be completely dubious and nebulous like there is no world wide web there is no website for a company like Sony so how do you expect them to publish the source code for it uh, Sony the Hedgehog, uh, sorry, Sony the the Hedgehog. Uh, wait, well, that was actually that was Mega Drive. Was it the Sony one? Yeah, I was just giving. I just I just yeah, threw a name for example. I'm just trying to think yeah. of Sony title that yeah. sort of name. So, uh, yeah. Japanese one, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the um, but the fact is, uh, uh, those games couldn't really have the source code distributed because there is. I mean, what are they supposed to do? Uh, the, 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 the form of media back then was like, you know, floppy disks and stuff. Are they supposed to give you like a floppy disk with a source code when you buy the, the cassette or something? It makes no sense. Uh, there is no website yet. There's no such thing. Uh, so from there, we move onwards to like the 90s and whatever. And, and, and free software was not very big back then. Netscape was proprietary. Windows was proprietary, always still was proprietary, almost everything was proprietary. That was the golden era of proprietarization of software. After back in the 80s, uh, people in like, computer labs such as in MIT I know of, uh, were starting to kind of turn products into uh, so-called solutions and there would be no access to you know, how these things are built. That changes now. IBM has just announced that they call open power, which is a way of just open washing the, you know, power infrastructures and, and architecture. But um, they try to they start to now market things. This is the open solution. This is supporting lots of different operating systems. You can look inside. You can download schematics, maybe, uh, and that's starting to catch on. So I think with games. 
it's possible some games will try to distinguish themselves by saying like, hey, let's collaborate on this development, you know, create new characters and add them to your game, and maybe we'll put it up to our repository, and I mean, it will be the next version. The, 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 and this makes perfect sense what you've just said, but what how I saw the um, gaming market develop was uh, was slightly different. I mean, I was lucky enough to be on Micronet. This was way before the uh, World Wide Web. Um, it was a, a Spectrum uh, 48K service where, with I believe a 300 board or 900 board modem, you would connect uh, via dial-up to a, a thing that resembled something that you see on Teletext or CFAX, if anybody remembers the old Teletext uh, service on, your, on the British TV. Um, that had the facility there, you could actually buy games and you could actually download them. And um, they had a, a selection of um, public domain software for what, I say public domain, that's probably the best description of what it was, um, shareware titles then. Um, I think what's the reason why proprietary software stayed um, in the mainstream was because that's what made the money because there was no reason for people to give the source code for their latest game because they were selling it to a mainstream the, I'll interested. tell you why they have regions okay let's say you got your BBS server mm. um, now showing you the source code without you being able to exercise the right to change it and to redistribute is kind of futile you can see how it works to code, but you probably won't be that interested. Especially, you won't be interested unless you can contribute and to share the changes, either returning to the returning it to the original developer or making your own version. Now, even if you have access to the source code on a BBS server somewhere, uh, how are you going to distribute this to people and do so legally? Now, you might be able to say this is, you know. Uh, a better version of it, I removed some of the flaws and the bugs but how are you going to advertise that? You have no website, there is no such thing as a website and people are not going to come and download your version so the incentive to really create your own versions of things is quite low and uh, and even back then you know people deal with very small amounts of memory and storage space so compiling your own program uh, or especially something like a game is is just it's just a bit unrealistic unless you're like in a research lab somewhere so you couldn't reflect upon those times and say well back then there was no free software because we kind of know that the internet drove what we now know as uh, this revolution that's that makes the best browsers the best web servers and a lot of the world's uh, infrastructure, the so-called uh, cloud, whatever you want to call it, is very much free software reliant. It's because there is the internet, because there is things like GitHub, and people can collaborate on on code and yeah, pass but, uh, it around. Again, I, I, th I mean, I, I think without laboring the point, I think there is a definite line between utility and uh, adapting utilities to your names. For example, BBS. Stuff. I was trying to remember what software I used when I ran a BBS. Um, on the Amiga, and it escapes me which what I was using, but it's certainly a public domain uh, BBS server. Um, but I think there's, I think there is a massive line, and like I say, with with our with our gaming industry, because fashion's coming in in and out. I say fashion's probably a bad word for the game, but mm. trends come trends come in and out with games, and what might be a hit one week, certainly that genre of game isn't. I mean, we we progressed from all sorts of uh, variations of a of a genre. Um, over the years, so 
I think there's a line. I mean, I'd like to see a time when, yes, you think we'd get source code. Um, I mean, I, I personally wouldn't. If I was going to play a game, I'd play a game. I've got no real interest in modifying it, changing it, or doing anything with it. Um, but I would like to see a time when that's available. I just can't see it. A lot of the games is, uh, a lot of the games these days are not starting by writing uh, an engine from scratch, and uh, mm. and you can classify different games like you know put them on a scatter map and and say this one is based on the following engine and this one is based on the following engine and making like a bunch of islands and they're all connected. A lot, a lot of the engines, by the way, are free software these days. Um, or and components it, of them will be free and software. This is, and, and this is made, sorry. So, um, so a lot of the games themselves, you could call them skins. It would be a funny way of saying it, but you kind of say, I'm going to get Unreal Engine with the skin, the alien skin or the army skin. And what it will involve is characters. So the engine will deal with different data sets. So the games then become a form of art, uh, copyright. Um, so there will be a bunch of artists sitting with Blender if they want to use free software and designing characters. And then there will be rules on how they behave. Usually the physics is done by some free open source software or proprietary, if some prefer it. Um, and we also interviewed in one of our shows some of the game developers, and I think they were using some some kind of engine that you know would uh, handle the physics. And I think it was free software. Uh, I can't remember right now when we interviewed them. Uh, a couple of oh, uh, um, was that you talking about greedy, greedy car thieves? Yeah, which was based yeah, like yeah, on yeah. a yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's a very nice game. It looks very nice. And there's a lot of reuse of code. Now, here's a, kind of a hypothetical um, proposition of sorts. Uh, maybe one day, uh, some game company will decide, okay, we would like to start this open source crowdsourcing gaming thing. Uh, send us uh, uh, images of, your, of yourself or send us 3D sets that you created in your house of cars and people and let's create a game together and the funding will be easier to take care of because people will sign away a kind of a waiver saying you can use it in any way you want for the game and people will feel like part of the uh, of the game they will feel involved maybe lots of them will want to play it uh, to some degree that's what we had with second life if you can remember it still. I think it's kind of extinct wasn't now. That, wasn't that written with... Um, oh. A Samono there. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't yeah. that a mono? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but let's not concentrate on <laughs> that. It's, it's written with various things, and yeah. Unity 3D uses mono as well. So quite a few games have some element of mono in them. But, and and, and Fire, <laughs> Firefox wants to, uh, to uh, do some kind of a game in... Uh, um, how should I put it? They they want to market Firefox as a gaming platform in which you can render games and play games. And one of the first deals they did to achieve that was with Unity. Although they wouldn't say it very publicly, it was to do with Mono to some degree. And when I was first appointed as like the CEO before the whole sheet storm started, I kind of said like the, the one thing we need to fix is them dealing with Unity because shortly afterwards they dealt with another game engine 
uh, within Firefox. So, so it's not doesn't have to be just Unity 3D, which is using model. Uh, and and you do see that there there are several efforts to bring together things that are free software to uh, to kind of lower the barrier to entry as 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 you wish to uh, approach potential users of games so they don't have to download the game they can play it over the web uh, and also it will be easier to develop for uh, because you have the framework you just have to provide some inputs uh, back in like the 90s there were several frameworks in which you could kind of create your own games and it was a bit of a hip thing, at least back then. You can create your own quest, like you know, King's Quest and Space Quest and Police Police. Uh, Sierra Online, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. they had some frameworks by which you could put the characters and move them around and define rules by which basically they gave you like bits of what they were using themselves, I suppose, to create their games. Uh, and they let you create your own game. Uh, it's not not been around for 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 a while, I've not seen anything like this recently. But oh. in any case, I I, I think that the, the the point to make here is uh, let's wait and see if the whole crowdsourcing mentality, which is very very hot right now in the open source intelligence community, as you might call it, like Facebook, where people are basically doing peer surveillance and acting as informants on each other. Uh, let's see if that mentality will be used positively to create fun games for people that they can participate in. Well, just my final controversial thing on this uh, subject before we move on, and obviously feel free if you want to shout back at me afterwards, but I'm going to say this about gaming, and like I say, I make a clear distinction here. My personal uh, opinion says that gaming is in a separate box to everything else that we enjoy in the open source world, which undoubtedly has so many benefits being open source software but the game is in a different box and I'll give an example and I always look back to a game from I believe mid 80s I think that was when it was released it was called Elite and it was uh, a game written by Ian Bell and David Braben and it was put on most platforms I can think of at some point in their history um, this game was written in 32k and it contained an accurate star map of the entire galaxy um, as part of the game and it was sort of like a, the first type sandbox type game um, on the 8-bit computers. Um, very popular, very successful and an amazing piece of programming work um, made by two geniuses who went on to write many other uh, amazing pieces of software. Now if I skip on a few years and we look at the demo scene um, on the Amiga and to a varying degree on Atari ST as well, um, both these environments, demo scene on the Amiga and the the uh, the proprietary gaming scene on the 8-bit computers. They didn't share their code. There was no collaboration. And as a result, instead of having um, being held back, what you got was far more creativity because, for example, in terms of the Amiga demo scene, you had demo crews which were making basically tech demos showing the uh, the advantages of the Amiga computer in the, in the uh, example of the Amiga demo scene and they would break all the rules they would do things which were completely uh, unwritten in the tech manuals that uh, apparently were impossible to produce and they did that because they're in competition with other groups who also didn't share their source code and wouldn't say their secrets and as a result some of the boundaries that uh, the Amiga had placed in it when it was first released and its uh, tech manuals were publicly re re 
publicly released um, were completely broken because of these people that sat in rooms trying to outdo their friends. Um, the same in the proprietary world. I mean, had uh, the elite developers, he didn't have any other source code to cut, copy and paste from. Um, he didn't have any uh, World Wide Web to have debates about and throw code up and get opinions and have a look at other people's similar works. He had to sit in the bedroom or an office somewhere. Uh, they and could copy his... and paste. I mean, well, okay. no, no, I was just saying, look, look, look at the way, okay, look at the beginnings of Microsoft. I don't want to go into this, mm. but there was a lot of copying by hiring people who had worked for previous companies or competitors. Oh, that, that was a business plan. Yeah. yeah, so there was a lot of copying and pasting, and it was hidden by compiling the code. Mm. And it took a while to see all that. There were lawsuits as well. So yeah. that was happening. It just wasn't legalized in the same way that a lot of people do things or consume drugs that are not legal but just because we are not catching them doesn't mean it's not happening uh, i mean but so, i think in in the case of things like elites and that was just one but one example um i mean that was something that was so completely unique and so completely not technically or on paper it should be impossible you cannot have a uh, a fully functioning star map on a 32-bit computer a 32k computer um on a five and a quarter inch floppy disk it just can't be done um, it, it just on a pure numbers basis uh, for, the, for the amount of data, but somehow Ian Bell and David Braben have developed this piece of code which ran on the BBCB and then a few other computers after that and it developed over time. Mm. And they didn't have the um, the I luxury. Of Star Map. Well, maybe this even back in the eighties we knew that there were you know at least back then a hundred. If you look at Cosmos, the number back then was. A hundred million suns. So even if you do the mathematics, even if they made a binary map where every, you know, just the existence of a story's map is far too few ones and zeros to just even account for the number. But of I mean, stars. I mean, the point, the, the point I make, I mean, is is just I, th I think there is a, a definite distinction. And if I may, I'll I'll just add one final point, which is completely uncontroversial about my opinion in respect of gaming, which had a lot of people quite confused. Um, it's been reported in the last, I believe, a few days, E.T. has been discovered in New Mexico. It's been dug up and discovered. Now, this had a lot of interest initially because it was very badly reported by some people on their Twitter feeds. And uh, by all accounts, a lot of conspiracy folk and alien believers have been uh, interested in this. Well, what it actually was, was um, back to the uh, Atari 2600. Now, many years ago, when um, the Atari 600 was in its heyday, in the 80s they released a game called E.T. and it was based on a film and it was predicted to be horrendously popular but unfortunately the game was rushed and um, they had very little time to produce it and when it hit the shelves it was one of the worst titles even in the Atari 2600 days that anybody had ever played and they ended up shifting about I believe about half a million units which was appalling because they produced millions expecting a smash hit. I may have played that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, I well, you, can, you can on the emulator, uh, funny enough. Well, now, very this, is, this is where the story gets a little bit weird because what they decided to do with all these copies of uh, E.T., the, the computer game, they put them into a landfill in New Mexico, which apparently is a landfill where Atari have um, dumped... Uh, their stuff before. Perfectly legally, I, I hasten to add, not just digging holes and dropping stuff in them. This was an official landfill site. Mm. Um, Usually they export it to Africa or China first. Well, it's it, apparently outsourcing the poisons. That's well, the uh, 
typical. Uh, <laughs> well, 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 our, our old ET made his trip to New Mexico, and he's been buried in um, in a landfill. And there was a mission set up a few weeks ago for um, a load of uh, diggers to go over there and start uh, sticking a shovel in the in the desert and try to find our ET. And it's just been reported that they have unearthed him um, in New Mexico. There's apparently thousands of titles there. Um, it's all rather interesting. Um, what's made more interesting slightly is that the people that got the wrong end of the stick when this news first hit. Um, so yeah, go and check it. Mashable have reported it properly. Um, so you can see uh, the whole article there. And I think they've got footage of them digging up the first copy of it. So a uh, very interesting bit of retro computing there. And then my question now is, after being buried for about 30 odd years in a desert in New Mexico, does the cartridge still work? So uh, they may have actually made those in the U.S. back then. It's like the eighties. Yeah, they may have actually had factories to make electronics. Imagine that. <laughs> no, well, actually, they still have a few, actually. You know, like, just goes to show you them obviously make things uh, uh, to last in those days because there's a very proud picture of a chap holding up a copy of uh, E.T. Um, surrounded by cameras. Yep, and it says, uh, "Yes, Earth, New Mexico, and gaming history has been discovered." So uh, there you are. You can check that out over at Mashable. Just um, north of uh, north of New Mexico, they have lots of uh, nuclear waste buried in uh, mountains, which is probably safer than putting it somewhere next to the uh, seashore. But um, it's becoming a real issue. You know, the U.S. Uh, still manufacturing uh, nuclear weapons and uh, trying to modernize its uh, arsenal and humans. The expense is something like tens of billions right now per year, and uh, I think education and healthcare should come first. But um, I guess the Cold War is the next big war to make a money to, to to make some money from. And uh, there was some success, not so much in Syria. It did aggravate Russia, but now in Ukraine they get lots of aggravation and. Here we are, you know, uh, now there is justification for many countries to kind of beef up their military budget, so uh, that, that's another topic. <laughs> well, going well that, yeah. talking of topics, I'm sure you have something else we can... Uh... Uh, there is a bug in OpenSSL, and I wrote, I think, four articles about it, and uh, if you would like to hear my opinion, I can share yeah, it, that briefly. So, nobody knew anything about a bug in OpenSSL. Although I, I had already covered one such bug last year when I wrote about Red Hat and connections it has to the NSA. Connections which, by the way, go beyond SC Linux and staff from inside Red Hat confirmed that they even get uh, patches sent from the NSA that they then submit to Linus and he doesn't know it came from the NSA. So, and there is also a program um, which was explained by a FreeBSD developer from Denmark that um, that would allow them to kind of put in bug doors, not back doors, but bug doors in, in software. So, I already have a lot of suspicion even of companies like Red Hat when it comes to Backdoors. I wrote several articles about it, and the company's staff, when replying to me, was not really able to counter what I had claimed. Uh, that 
that was a real cause for concern. Uh, the, we already know that there were attempts to put backdoors in Linux several times before. And uh, and even the father of Linus Torvalds, this is something we had a time to cover, uh, spoke about it. So here we have this uh, situation with OpenSSL again. And I only knew about it because there was a website one morning. and. The website was a .com website, it has a logo, it has a nice catchy uh, name and stuff. And I, I decided to explore who is behind this thing, and, and it turns out it's a partner of Microsoft. And who's the, um, the chairman of the board? The former chief of security at Microsoft, who had also worked for the FBI. And you know the FBI knows all the tricks of how to infiltrate software. Um, we now know the NSA apparently knew this trick for at least two years since it happened. And this thing was announced on, I think, the 7th of uh, April to the public, which is exactly, curiously enough, the same day when a lot of corporations, some of which I work with in the UK, uh, basically said, okay, this is the last day that Windows XP is a supported operating system, it's not secure anymore, let's move to Linux and open source. So I think there was a strategic disclosure there. Now, this firm did not actually discover the bug. The bug was, was discovered quietly in Google sometime before, but this company just abducted uh, the the bug it gave him a name. He did a whole kind of PR campaign to promote this this thing, and completely flood the press with bad publicity for uh, Foss. Like he's Foss still something you can trust, of course, because a few lines of code that completely changes everything you ever knew about open source, even though Coverity, which is tied to the U.S. government. A few days later, published a study saying again, free software has got better quality than proprietary code in terms of bugs. So I wrote several posts highlighting uh, the most recent post is actually quotes from the company itself saying that it exploited the, the thing to publicize itself. And and the day that it did that, it basically completely distracted the world from the idea that Windows XP, many users, especially in companies and governments, are still using it, uh, it distracted from the idea that people should move to free software, and everything to do with free software at the time was just, is it secure enough, is it not secure, you cannot trust it, and so on and so forth. So I think it was a big PR campaign. Is the bug so serious? Yes, it's quite serious. However, it's things like this kind of happened before, and it takes a lot of computing powers, power to exploit those bugs. So those with supercomputers can probably exploit them, the NSA for instance. But no apocalypse has happened since then. And the latest articles will just tell you this was just a big hype over something that was serious, but you know, not that serious. And when it was announced, all the major GNU/Linux distributions had already patched the bug, so all they had to do basically just apply the patches, you'll be fine. So 
uh, it seems to me like there was a big publicity stunt. And I don't even want to say the name of the bug. And it's it's all just marketing, and it's 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 rather gross. It completely flooded the news over the past three weeks. Well, I think there is a concern um, by everybody with an interest that um, when uh, that uh, XP went the went the journey, there would be a, certainly a looking at other options and solutions. Um, whether big industry would have ever considered going elsewhere uh, for their or big corporations. Yeah, yeah. These but. computers would not run any version of Windows except XP. Few of them would. Uh, probably not Vista or Vista 7, but the only logical step now is just no, you know, just move to oh. a distribution of Linux. And, and this well, there, is, there is some people cashing in on its, um, on its uh, redundancy, as it were, because um, I've seen a couple of companies that uh, have been written about in some of the mainstream press that's uh, offering support and security and etc. etc. Um, for people that aren't uh, wishing to move. I mean, it's certainly not an option for the home user who sat uh, with XP stuffed up on their desktop machine, but for a corporation that's maybe got you know, 100,000 100, deployments of it, it might be a cheaper alternative rather than uh, a complete migration to anything. Um, well, how long for? I don't know. I don't know. That I didn't and also, these computers are fairly old. Remember, mm. this computer, this is really getting along in the tooth. So if you pay people, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand a year, and the computer that's new would cost you less than a thousand pounds to uh, to buy, um, you know, productivity would matter uh, to uh, you. And, so, I mean, so one one thing I, I, I would say about any sort of migration to any different uh, ecosystem or operating system is that people say about retraining, and I think that's over exaggerated um, when they say, "Oh, people switching from say a, a Windows to a, to a Linux uh, system, oh, they need retraining, and it's going to cost you more to uh, retrain all your staff than it would be to you know, to upgrade to our latest." They can still use yeah. the old applications yeah. and application exactly. servers. And this is what we do for one of the clients is, uh, let's say you want to take them out of an XP environment. The, the major barrier usually is they have applications that weren't designed for other versions of Windows or something. So all you need to do is to make sure you have a server somewhere that's capable of running those things and people can remotely connect to it. They can yeah. use Linux. There's no but issue I, I, with that. They can use remote desktop or VNC or something. And they I, can use it. I think I think it's very different now because, um, for example, I've deployed a lot of Linux to uh, to users of Windows. I hasten to add these are home users and uh, just average average people who have a, a computer for average uh, means around the houses. They're certainly not corporations. Um, and I've deployed Linux to them. And uh, over the years, what I've noticed now is the amount of want of a better word training in order to show them the differences and say look this works slightly different to what you're used to this is better because this does it this way is less because and the reason why it doesn't need so much training is because we do so much of our everyday uh, living in the browser yeah. and of course chromium on linux is exactly the same as chromium on any other operating system um, and the interface of the browser is usually yeah. within the page itself as yeah opposed exactly to the browser the browser and is just back and forth and as long as they can read a, an icon that says Chromium or Firefox or whatever, it's really there's no more training that's needed to be uh, to be done than that. Um, 
also have noticed uh, recently, actually, funnily enough, was um, a lot of people that have uh, given Linux to um, using DOSBox a lot, which is uh, quite a, a nice little um, utility for them to, to have on the machine. So um, corporations use it as well. Yeah. They use things like FoxPro still, uh, uh, and, and in some cases even other operating systems. So they use some emulation or compatibility layers. Well, it's, it's mainly because the people that I've, um, I've deployed Linux to are from the old school of text adventures and things like we were mentioning earlier of King's Quest and Sierra Online games. And there's uh, probably no better way to to get the original experience then to run it in DOSBox and it's a very modest little package because it's not one that you hear talked about all the time um, you talk, you hear MAME which is a multiple arcade machine emulator and that's talked about quite often it's a very big big uh, project on Linux well you have uh, free DOS so it shouldn't be yeah. so hard to write something that runs this application but, um, it, it, like I said it's, very, it's a very modest package because DOSBox works incredibly well and is an uh, incredibly efficient little, uh, little utility um, and it's like I say, you know, you've got so many options now within the Linux operating system to get that old uh, get old functionality back on um, for old packages that use. I mean, I know many uh, companies that use very very old uh, DOS programs, and they've got no reason to change because it works and it does exactly what their staff have been there for 10, 15, 20 years expect it to do, and there's no issues. Um, and this is where. For the rest of the, the staff where they're using most of the stuff in the browser, I mean, many uh, many of the big organizations I've uh, been exposed to use, use a lot of web-based applications themselves within an intranet, which um, they, they've developed themselves, and really, all you require is a browser. And in fact, using Internet Explorer is probably the worst possible solution, um, and they openly embrace things like Chromium or Firefox or um, whatever. Um, so yeah, it's the migration issues now and the retraining issues are really a non-starter. Um, and I would expect, especially with things like crossover or, um, it's, I've had a mental blank, uh, blank now about the uh, the other, but Wine, um, you've got applications like that and there's no reason why, certainly for a lot of you utilities that you may want to run, you may already find there's Wine uh, compatibility. Um, so, th so there is no real training issues. Um, oh, one has been incredibly useful actually. Um, when migrating company to uh, it's you know any any other operating system for that matter, it can be some form of Unix or BSD, but uh, they want to be able to run the applications at least temporarily as a kind of a cushion because well, they it, it, and 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 one is doing a very good job running those applications, it doesn't encourage developers to develop it, you know, for a certain uh, API the way Mono does, but given that they're stuck with a binary that only runs on Windows uh, and was designed for Windows, it would be useful to have it running under... It's, it's also quite nice, I mean, there's certain little packages, proprietary packages that you stumble across on the net and you would like to have a look at them. And Wine excels. I mean, I've I've chucked quite a lot of stuff at Wine, which obviously isn't on the compatibility charts because it's really secure. Um, really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I've now lost the second word. Um, it's really obscure, and uh, I've chucked it at Wine. It's 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 loaded really fine. The nice thing about Wine is it's so transparent. And unless you actually know that you're using Wine and make a conscious decision to use it, but I know if I put it onto one of the people's machines that I installed Linux on, they wouldn't even know. They would assume it was a, it was just 
a Linux uh, piece of software because unless you look for the subtle differences and look at the windows it's, you really don't notice the difference and I mean I'm looking at my desktop now and I'm running Peppermint 4 at the moment I think we covered this very briefly last uh, last episode and really if people are loving XP uh, and they don't want to leave that there is very little difference um, in an XP desktop to Peppermint 4 I look at my start menu and it's got a menu uh, instead of a start word um, and it has a slightly different icon which is a peppermint stick type thing rather than the, the Windows logo but everything else is pretty much exactly the same I've got a, a nice little landscape background and I have all my icons on the desktop and a few things in the start menu but it's all looking pretty much uh, like XP and if you were to show somebody who didn't know computers uh, or have an interest in them and say do you like my XP desktop you probably wouldn't even uh, notice at all and um, when you get into the realms of you know people using chromium and people using thunderbird for their email as well because outlook's horrible um really th there's no reason why they can't switch over with no training whatsoever in fact quite contrary because a lot of people now using smartphones are very used to a software center but what's linux had for many years i've had software managers and software centers where you install software like you do on a mobile phone which is something that they're used to which is very different to the days of going onto Windows, downloading an .exe file, installation file, installing it, and then clicking the yes/no prompts. Um, this does everything for you. There's even places where people can look at the package on their software center and see the reviews, so they can see other people's opinions on the on the software, and they know that they're not going to be downloading a virus or actually guaranteed they won't be downloading a virus because it's coming straight from the uh, from the repo itself, not from some possibly dodgy Has Microsoft ever got, gotten around to having something similar implemented either for Windows or for the mobile platform? I, I don't like, know. I mean, when I say I don't I haven't used Windows since 2008, I haven't. I mean, I've very I've, I've used it briefly, like for when um, an employer might be using it, and I've had to go onto a machine. And I might have used a bit of Microsoft Office, but physically sitting down exploring Windows. I've never done since I was dual, boot, dual booting XP in 2008, and then Vista came along and decided I'd go 100% Linux. So um, Apple's so following the footsteps. So I think Linux I think I think Windows 8, I think Windows 8 has has a software center of sorts. I'm sure it does. Okay. So um, at least two people are happy now. Yes, but I mean, yeah. yeah, it's funny that Linux has had this for so many years, and Linux has had a, the stereotype of being inaccessible to new users yet they Linux has had the software manager which is something that everybody's yeah. well, loved to use on their of, phones. Uh, yeah. The name recognition of the... I mean today I found an application I couldn't even tell you the name it starts with K4 and it's basically an application which replicates an application for other platforms including Windows and it goes through your entire hard drives and maps uh, all the files by size and it allows you to find big files and, and, and directories. This is a very nice application but I wouldn't know it by name unless I was searching uh, using iXquick uh, and just searching for some of the graphical uh, uh, um, disk space utilities and, uh, and this was one of the first one they listed because I was looking for a very specific type of thing. Now the issue is when a person comes to Windows slash Linux, he or she will not know what they're looking for. Uh, they will know things by brands. I'm looking for the you know the Blue E, or I'm looking for 
uh, my uh, my office, you know, my office or my outlook or something. That's the issue. And when you say to them a long word like Thunderbird, then what the hell is that? Thunderbird, it sounds immediately, it sounds like, you know, Thundercats or something. And their immediate reaction, just like, I don't know it, I don't want, you know, and, and, and that's, that's, that's really the biggest concern, I suppose. But then, I mean, Thunderbird itself, you know, with um, I mean, a lot of people now using the, the web to, uh, web, using a browser, sorry, to access their email, um, I always gauge the sort of mainstream trends by my parents because they're the last people to want to jump on board at a software package and learn it. Um, so what they're using tends to be, in my opinion, quite typical of the average user who has no interest in the computer that they've got just using it as a tool. Um, and my mother is using her email via the browser. Um, so even she knows that um, Outlook isn't isn't for her. And uh, so, so my father as well, um, they both have their own ac accounts on the same machine and uh, just log in via the web page. Um, talking of which, uh, just, just very briefly, um, I was saying about running Peppermint, I do need to quickly mention two things. Firstly, Peppermint 4, I covered this on my website and anybody who's looking to uh, move elsewhere, maybe they're disillusioned now uh, with Windows and they've they like the XP environment or an XP type environment. Please, please have a look at Peppermint 4. Uh, fantastic uh, distro. Um, very, very small, very tight and compact. Um, it's got leaning towards a cloud, but in no way forces you to go that way. And you can quite easily install by the software center, which works in the same way as your mobile phone software center. Um, as many locally installed packages as you like. Um, very, very quick. In fact, I don't think you'll find a quicker distro um, as it stands because your speed is really only limited by the amount of time it takes to load up a web browser and services you're accessing and your uh, your broadband speed. But that would be to do with the desktop environment. Uh, I mean, yeah, Linux yeah. is Linux. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, so, I mean, it's it's a very punchy distribution. It doesn't load anything um, that you wouldn't need immediately. Everything is, if you want to install things, obviously that's up to you. But the the package that you presented with when you install it from the disk is very simple, simple, and um, everything is ready to go onto the NES, and it's got that in mind. Like I said, if you want to take that to a locally installed stage later, that's that's your choice. But and it's, Whatever happened with uh, Mozilla had a kind of boot to Firefox thing. Sorry? And Mozilla had a kind of initiative, at least maybe two years ago, something about booting into Firefox. It's not Firefox OS, but there were several, I can think of even Presto from Zandros. Uh, so some companies were trying to market this idea of just basically booting a browser with mm. an operating system as an open shell, something along the lines of what you've just described. But I don't think it ever really succeeded no. so much. I mean, it, it, Chrome OS quite, is not quite that. It's something different. No, there was Joe. There was Joe Cloud. I uh, remember that one. That's I think I believe that's still going. Um, Joey Cloud was virtually nothing more than a. a Booting into a browser, uh, a um, oh, they renamed. They used to be called Jolly something else. What, what I, was I, the I, come, name? I come. I mean, at the time, I mean that was very pioneering stuff because at the time we didn't have the infrastructure available to the average user to make that worthwhile. In my opinion, now we've got Google Drive, for example, offering you storage space at one point, um, one pound forty nine 
for 100 gigabytes. Um, you've got all these online services and apps. I mean, I, I said to you, I think a few weeks back, there's, you can even run this a web ba a web based Amiga emulator now, which runs absolutely perfectly, um, which allows you to emulate the old Amiga range of computers without having to even install a single thing on your computer. Um, so, I mean, we're at a very different level now in terms of the cloud and in terms of online applications than we were all those years ago. Um, so, yeah, things like Jolie Cloud were quite sort of, you know, pioneering at the time, but really a bit before their time. Um, whereas now we are dedicated to being online. I mean, most people, if you switch off their net connection, really would sit and look at their computer screen and say, right, I'm going to go out and do something else. Because most, so much of the stuff that we do um, on an average level is, is to do with the, with the internet now, um, be it social networking or just uh, playing computer games even now. Um, can I just make one other mention which we failed to do I believe in the last episode and that was the software we're using to record this. Um, for people that have listened to the show and my dulcet tones for far too many years um, will remember we used to use Skype a long time ago. We didn't like using it, um, we had issues with it, but at the time it was one of the only ways we could uh, connect up uh, without many errors and get a reasonably sounding uh, show together um, and get it out there. So the views on using Skype itself were put to one side. And luckily when Microsoft took over Skype, we discovered Mumble at the same time because we, um, we were looking for an alternative. And that's what we're using now. And Mumble, if you haven't used it, is absolutely fantastic package. It's not the same type of thing that you'd get from Skype. It's not built to have a, an address book and be a, a sort of a, a telephone system or VIOP, uh, VOIP, sorry, uh, system. It, it's meant for online gaming and it's meant to get communities together talking to each other. But we're using it at the moment, and as you can hear, it's working very well. It's very simple to use and thoroughly recommend it. I'm sure Roy will back me up on the. Yeah, lots of features. And, uh, it's very simple to use. Uh, it also puts security. Uh, as a kind of high priority and you have to establish connection with SSL um, so with certificates too so uh, it seems to be designed by integrating a whole bunch of uh, open source packages uh, you can it's possible when you actually install it you can see which ones they are uh, and, and this is a very good example of uh, where in my, I'm not sure on your side, but on my side, it it also uses uh, Qt4, so it uses a very nicely KDE type environment uh, with wizards and everything. It looks very native and it looks very nice. Um, the the one thing that should be mentioned though is this is marketed strangely enough as more of a gamers um, environment for for chats and and I think it's a bit of a you know, a lot. Of, it's kind of a missed opportunity because this is a really fantastic application that could be expanded to be more, you know, more easily used as a um, as an alternative alternative to all the SIP clients the team and I have been investigating is investigating over the years. Um, and and what, what I was going to say, what about Bumble? I don't know what version you're using, Roy, but mine's one point two point three point four nine as um, but that was the one that came out of my uh, my repo but um, what I like about this I'm using Qt on it Qt yes 
1.2.3. So, um, what I was going to say was what, what I particularly like about Mumble is it's very, very transparent in that at the moment Roy is recording um, this whole uh, conversation. Obviously, this is part of the show which you'll put through a few um, audio processes before he'll uh, put it out onto the net. But the nice thing is, by his name, there's a little red dot which lets me know he's recording. And when he presses the recording button, like I'm about to now, you'll hear it works. Hopefully that. I'm not that, sure it will be audio. Oh, right, I didn't right. I was hoping that would come out over the thing, but basically yeah, it tells you very voice clearly. Voice synthesis, basically, yeah. inside the application. Um, it's it's a really nice package, and like Roy was saying, completely wasted um, in terms of the other applications that could be put to if um, if it was not sold or marketed. Or, that's not the right word, but introduced to other people, because um, I mean, it's, it's virtually. A VOIP IRC is what how I look at it because you have so many servers. There doesn't appear to be any sort of um, rules in terms of which servers you can connect to. If you can connect to them, I assume you can use them. Um, me and Roy are the only two people in this particular channel at the moment. And the servers themselves are free yeah. software. The backend software is called Murmur, uh, and I never really tried to run it, and I didn't set up an instance to host it. Uh, I think there is a commercial uh, company coming out of this, you know, free software thing, commercial, what do you know? Uh, because when I searched for information about it, I found a uh, .com website, which basically ho provides hosting of, you know, servers for this facility. So maybe if you're in a company and you're looking for a web conferencing tool that would enable you to uh, encrypt and to secure your communication with SSL and you don't want to use something like uh, asterisk this might be an opportunity you can set this up you can go into chats we can communicate uh, cross-platform uh, I agree and it's, it's, it's probably one of the travesties of the open source world because like I say packages like this you don't hear about um, it's not on um, not spoken about um, all the time or I, I can't remember how we came across Mumble. I think it was purely a, a directed search for a replacement to Skype but it's, the, the people should be talking about these packages because as I say we, me and Roy and obviously we have a, a um, an agreement with uh, well not agreement but our opinions are favoured towards free and open source software but having said that we don't give a package an easy ride and if it causes problems I'm sure Roy would be the first to, to say the problems as much as I would but there's been no simpler package um, in terms of uh, easy use, setting it up, common sense UI with requesters that actually make sense and do as they say um, then Mumble, it's been, uh, it's been actually a pleasure me, to install Since it. we mentioned that, okay, Mumble is mostly for multi-person communications. It doesn't have to be, it can be one like, like myself and team right now. And you can define rules by which some people will be listeners and some people will be active participants. So in theory you could also do a live show. And this is something we're going to be working towards, I think, in the coming months or whatever. But here's the thing. Uh, I tried a lot of SIP clients on Android and Linux, and uh, the ones that work best for me, and trust me, I did try quite a few, and the team would know that as well. Uh, on Android, use LeanPhone. LeanPhone works really well. 
with any of the other clients that are using SIP. On a GNU Switch Linux desktop, use GTSI. J I T S I. Uh, that's the only one that really works for me really well. Uh, not necessarily always with video, but sometimes with video as well. Uh, and that uses Java, unfortunately. But, but it works well. And it shouldn't be hard, as I've spent, I would say, almost a thousand hours maybe. Uh, Using uh, using it basically as a phone application between an Android phone and a Linux desktop, so it's a very uh, valuable combination. It's possible to completely avoid Skype. You just need to know which applications to use. That's all. Well, we certainly haven't used uh, Skype since we discovered Mumble, um, and when we came back to recording, uh, it was a very simple. Uh, process to get straight back into it. In fact, like I think we had it, the whole system up and running within about five or ten minutes. And that that was both of us uh, installing it and then getting uh, hooked up together. There are some applications people should be very careful when they install. One of them is Skype, especially the version from Microsoft, which had been uh, modified over the past couple of years to change the architecture of the exchange and transmission of data. And that un apparently enables much simpler surveillance, real-time surveillance as well. And we now know that the intelligence services also tap into videos in real time. And another package would be Dropbox. Uh, Dropbox would encourage people, whether it's on a phone or a desktop, to upload files immediately. And we spoke about it last show, I and mean, even Condoleezza Rice is now given uh, her seal of approval to Dropbox in the form of her joining the board, basically. So it's kind of clear that the company doesn't have any interest in people's privacy. Rice is a very big proponent of surveillance and has been for at least nine years. That's as long as I've known her being a big proponent of it. And another thing I would warn people about is anything to do with Facebook, including the applications for Facebook, which, as I found out, shockingly enough, not myself personally, but uh, it, it tends to transmit people's data automatically. They just say yes to some question, and every time a person takes a photograph, it will be transmitted to prison, to NSA. Uh, Google is becoming just about as bad, but uh, the head of Google Plus has just quit Google. So hopefully... Uh, People may, by this stage, realize a lot of the so-called Google Plus users are not really users, they're used, and they don't actually participate in any way in the network. It's just Google trying to auto-subscribe people and push them to click in an OK button to add themselves as a so-called, you know, member of Google Plus. But it's, it's mostly Google employees and some technical people, as far as I can tell. Well, on that note... I think we wrap it up for this session. I know you certainly had a, a time limit, and I certainly have one as well. Um, if I may, Roy, I've got uh, one more little quick uh, mention to make, and something quite amazing. And once you hear this, it's going to completely ruin your life, probably, if you're a Pac-Man fan. And since our show today has been uh, quite uh, quite directed towards gaming, it's quite relevant that we finish on this one. 
Um, this was something I picked up on Twitter, and uh, like I say, it's one of those things that once you've read it, read it, you can't actually unread something. And said in such a way that when you read it, you have to follow the instructions because you're interested to hear if, you're right, if it's right. And this is what it is. It's, um, it's a picture of Pac-Man, and he's got three of, the, um, three of the ghosts on this poster. And it says in text, it says, did you know, if you put a finger in your ear and scratch, it sounds like Pac-Man. Well, I read that, I thought, that's ridiculous, I can't possibly do that. And anyway, so I put my finger in my ear and scratched. True enough, it does actually sound like Pac-Man, the noise he made when he was eating the, um, eating the, uh, eating the berries or whatever he ate on the game. So there you are, you can find that on my Twitter line, timeline, that and a load of other useless facts. Um, I apologise for ruining anybody's Pac-Man uh, memories, if they have any. Um, and next, and Roy, I, I sincerely hope, Roy, when you stop recording, you take the headphones off, you put your finger in your ear and scratch, and you'll see what I mean. It does really sound like Pac-Man. So, on that basis, I'm going to close the show off. We've got no objections from Roy. Um, hopefully, we'll get another one done in the next few days. Although, we always say that, then I end up letting Roy down, and Roy ends up having to wait until I turn up back up in the IRC channel, and we get something organised. So, uh, let's hope for the next few days. Um, Roy, it's been a pleasure as always. And uh, I think I'll leave the final words with you, Roy. I sure had any. Um, well, basically, uh, so you returned from my period of absence um, nearly a year, in fact. We covered surveillance in a previous show. Today, we mostly focused on games, which wasn't necessarily the intention. We didn't plan this. Uh, there's still plenty of things we can cover in the mobile space, desktop, servers, and so on, but uh, the unfortunate thing is we sometimes have to decide whether to kind of focus on the latest news, as in today's news, or the past week's news, and even things like the past, you know, uh, year's news. Uh, and I guess it depends very much on the importance and granularity of the of the matters. Uh, what I'm hoping is that we'll kind of catch up with things we haven't discussed before, because a lot has happened. Uh, you made a prediction about Balmer being given the boots, and you were right, it just took a bit longer than you, <laughs> you thought. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I was right in the sense that I kind of knew what they would look for in a candidate to replace him. And uh, I don't have to say very much, but I think uh, uh, it was said very well in the uh, uh, in the joke a few days ago that in late 2016 uh, that will be the day that every person who used to be a racist for disliking the president will become a chauvinist. Right, well, that's. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, my. Uh, if I could just justify my prediction for a second, yeah. I remember saying that Balmer was going to go in 2008. Um, was originally when I, I think I wrote it in an article and I was I predicted that. So, on the basis that it took about six years, six or so years for that to come to fruition, um, it's probably safe to say that uh, the prediction wasn't particularly good because he had you to. You said it's also 2012. Yeah, but I, 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 so, so I'm thinking about his prediction actually. <laughs> I, I remember saying I remember um, I, I remember saying it in 2008 on the site. Well, it's a bit like predicting that one day Microsoft will cease to exist, well it will, um, it might take a while, 
and uh, or it might be quite quick, but it was quite an open prediction. So, uh, and uh, to, to to be fair, since uh, Steve Ballmer left Microsoft, it's not. Um, it didn't leave Microsoft. Well, no, since, since, yeah. <laughs> he's still in charge. Actually, yeah. the one in charge is Bill Gates, and, and uh, well, that's for another show, anyway. Yeah. It was a shame, I, and I miss the old fella because it gave us something to laugh about uh, when he was at the forefront of uh, Microsoft PR and uh, dancing on stage and stuff. So, uh, yes, he's sorely missed, um, just not in the way he wanted. And on that note, um, Roy, I apologise now. I have to say something as well before we shut this uh, show down. So, if you're finished saying. Uh, your piece. I'll firstly say thank you very much for everybody who spent their an hour and a half of their life listening to us both. Um, Roy had some very important to say. Me, not so, but at least you've got to stick your finger in the ear and make noise like Pac-Man. Although what I do want to say is just take this opportunity to say well done to Luton Town. We've now been promoting this football league. I'm sorry Roy, I know this is a technology thing, but I have to say it because Big Luton Town supporter and Andre Gray, our striker, has now been uh, awarded the Golden Boots Award because he scored the most goals in our in the league. So, um, well done to Luton Town, and I'm going to hopefully be getting down there for the celebrations. And I'm really sorry I had to drag it into the fight show. So, on that note, thank you for listening, and hopefully, I'll still be here next time. And Roy hasn't kicked me off the show. And uh, look after yourselves and speak to you soon. Get sauce. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. He tried to boss me and was outbossed. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. Underneath his creeper bridge, hoping goats will cross. Quoting Ashcroft and Tom Ridge, I fought the troll and the Troll lost, I fought the troll and the troll lost. He's even dumber than Mickey Cost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. Wouldn't last two minutes with David Frost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. His worldview sounds like pro wrestling, although not as nuanced. Behind his eyes, the wind's whistling. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I kicked him off a Pentagon and Atrios. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. He's permanently banned from daily cost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. And in November, W, and all his thugs will toss. We'll try to fix America. I fought the troll and the troll lost. I fought the troll and the troll lost. And all you trolls out there trying to aggravate everyone with your stupidity, illogic, and blind, unthinking devotion to the Bush regime, this section is especially for you. I'm not going to name any of you out loud, not wanting to give you even the slightest possible notoriety, but as you sink under the weight of your own asininity into an intellectual La Brea tar pit, you can imagine that I sing your nom de guerre right now. 
and bask in a stolen fame you don't deserve.